This is DJ Blackout. This uh, brings the program to a close. Uh, up next, we have Living Writers with T. Hetzel. I'd just like to say thank you to my guest, uh, DJ Sata, Don Dada, and uh, Korg Borgler, who uh, is taking us out with uh, one of the biggest tracks from last year, Axel Bowman's Purple Drank. Uh, great track. But uh, alas, the show is over. Tune in next week for some more electronic jams from 2 to 4.30. This has been Radio Blackout signing out. Peace.
Welcome. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have here in the studio Campbell McGrath. Uh, Campbell, welcome to Living Writers. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> and thanks for um, picking that song as uh, our yeah. opener. That was that's, that's right. That's you know you can't you can't beat the raspberries. I'm telling you. Yeah, I, I, it had everyone. We were all dancing around. Well. Head bobbing, at least in here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, the raspberries are—they got these three great songs. Um, they're just—you can't beat them. I just been listening to it over and over recently. Whenever I try to like go back to the nineteen, you know, to nineteen seventy-four mentally when I was like twelve years old, the raspberries are what I'm like. You know, anytime I hear it, it just brings me back. Is that part of your current project? Um, that nineteen seventy-four specific, or um, well, kind of in a way. I mean, actually, you know, I, and I've got a big poem here that I'm looking at. It's called Hits of the 70s, in which I just talk about all these, you know, from the raspberries to whatever. Do you want to um, read it? Do you want to just, you know, we can, we can I'll, do I'll, things a, backwards I'll, here. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, <laughs> read, start reading. I'll read some of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was just trying to look through it to see where the heck I have the raspberries in here. Yeah, but I'll, I'll go from there. Um, you know, it's a kind of, uh, uh, you know, thinking about all different parts of the, my life in the 70s when I was a you know teenager and into my college years so um so it's thinking about traveling around and Bruce Springsteen and then it's kind of cycling back to other stuff and it says or must we privilege public discourse over private grief generational anthems that articulate the zeitgeist protest ballads love songs that recall a particular summer taste of copper tone and august grass heavy on our tug tongues the raspberries urging us to go all the way oh what a night frampton the talking guitar please don't even begin to suggest that show me the way does not contain some pith or core immeasurable to man a pearl of priceless worth in its innocence Thanks, Campbell. That's, <laughs> that's so. There's the raspberries. You so know. that's shout yeah. out. I wonder what they're doing now. <laughs> oh, they're they're from uh, they're from Cleveland. They're from Cleveland, so oh. they're you know they're they're upper Midwesterners. Yeah. And so I, a shout I, out to Cleveland. And a shout out to Cleveland. I think they're probably you know hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I don't know for sure. Maybe listening. Yeah, Eric. No, Eric Carmen was their lead singer, and he went on to have like other hits in the '80s as a kind of more of a. Balladeer, but those early rock Beatles-esque rock and roll songs of theirs, I just love those. Yeah, yeah, it was it was super catchy. They, uh, they, it, it is. They it's were super catchy. they had the hooks. They, they did. did. They <laughs> had the, the the super like power pop hooks. Well, Campbell, before we go any further, yeah. I'm going to read the short bio out of your 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 book, Shannon, a poem of the Lewis and Clark expedition, um, out in 2009 uh, with Echo Press, uh, Harper Collins. Um, and I should say, we're taping this January tw 27th, 2011. Okay, here we go. Campbell McGrath, a recipient of Guggenheim and MacArthur grants, as well as the Kingsley Tufts Award, is the author of seven previous books of poetry, six of them available from Echo. He teaches at Florida International University in Miami. So now we can go mm -hmm. and fill in mm -hmm. more pieces of the bio, sure, if, sure. That's, if that's good with you, Campbell. Um, of course. So, you were born in Chicago, and yep. then you grew, did some growing up in D.C. area. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was born in Chicago, um, but because my father was uh, in medical school and in the Air Force, um, but then he he ended up being stationed at Walter Reed Army Medical Hospital in Washington D.C. And so I was a baby when we moved there, and I, so I grew up in D.C. And then, but then I went back to Chicago. I went to the University of Chicago, 
And um, was that just happenstance, or was it something that sort of you wanted to go back to some sort of where where you were born? Or <laughs> it, it was happenstance, but I, you know, I do I think of myself as like a serial Chicagoan. There's you know some people are serial killers. I'm a serial Chicagoan. <laughs> I, I go back there. I, I love Chicago. And right now my I, you know I hate to say this, but my son is 18 years old and he's a freshman at the University of Chicago. <laughs> so, oh oh wow. So, so it's like it's brought. Jeez, it's really going around and around here. It's in the family. It's in somehow. the family. My wife and I both went to University of Chicago. Her parents went to the University of Chicago. And that's where you guys met, obviously. And that's where then, we right? met in college. Um, exactly right. And what, uh, what a love story, Campbell. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have? Do you happen to have a love poem about that? In in your book, Spring Comes to, to Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> well, you know, I do. I I have written a whole book about Chicago, and Spring Comes to Chicago, and. Um, uh, it is certainly about Chicago quite a bit, and um, there, you know most of this book is a very long poem called the Bob Hope poem, which is about Chicago, but it's also about just American culture. But but there's a beginning. Uh, there's a poem that begins the book that's called the Golden Angel Pancake House, and it's very much of a kind of love poem to Chicago in winter, in particular. And now that I live in a place where there is no winter, you know, I think I'm going to read this poem later today at the university. So do you want to read it now? Yeah. Well, let me read a piece of it. Um, um, the Golden Angel Pancake House. Or coming out of bento on a wild midwinter midnight. Or later, closing time, Ron says, the last rack of pool balls ratcheted down until dawn. Bottles corked and watered. Lights out, going out the door beneath the L tracks over Clark and Sheffield. Always a train showing up just then. Loud, sure as hell, showering sparks upon the snowfall, shaking slightly the lights and trestles. Us in our fellowship, shouting and scurrying like the more sprightly selves we once inhabited behind parked cars and street signs, thinking, hey, should we toss some snowballs? Bullseye, the beauty of fresh snow in the hands, like rubbing tree bark to catch that contact high direct from the inexplicable source, unique however often repeated, carried along on woolen thumbs to the next absolutely necessary thing, slow gin fizzes to green mill jazz or the horror of Jägermeister at the ginger man, or one of those German bars up around Irving Park where a sup of the vice beer on tap is enough to convince me to forswear my stake in any vision of the afterlife you might care to construct. <laughs> Thanks, Campbell. <laughs> it's like a yeah, a peon to the a pay-in to the bars of Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even I, I heard the green mill there. <laughs> my ears yeah, pricked up the for green that mill, one yeah. too. Yeah. Well, so I went to University of Chicago, but then. Um, and then I moved to New York City, where I lived for five years, and I went to graduate school at Columbia. But after that, I moved back to Chicago for another five years. Um, and, and what brought you back, do you think? Life in New York was too expensive. That was, you know, we, we were, my wife and I were living in Manhattan, and it was just too expensive. And, and um, you know, we could have moved to Brooklyn like everybody else was doing in the mid-'80s and, you know, still are doing. But I said, let's, you know, let's move back to Chicago. It's Chicago and Brooklyn are both, you know, a long way from Manhattan, it seemed like, and um, and Chicago was, you know, it was cheaper and fun, and we had lots of friends there, still from college and, and relatives, and, and so we went back to Chicago. And how long did you stay there, then? We stayed there for like five years, and you know that's where my son was born, um, my first son, and um, then it was only, you know, it was only like the birth of a child that made me, you know, have to get a more full-time teaching job in my life and take over the. My wife had been kind of the full-time wage earner while I was a part-time adjunct professor and writing poems. 
but I had to get, you know, a real job. And that, that ended up leading us to Miami um, 18 years ago, and we've stayed there ever since, strangely. Yeah, for 18 years. So I is know. that the place that you've lived the longest then? or It is like... now the place I've lived the longest, exactly. I mean, you know, I basically lived till in D.C. till I was 18, but then I've never, you know, I've never lived there again. So, so I've lived in Chicago three times for various periods of time, but now, yeah, 18 years in South Florida. It's funny because I was picturing talking with you about place and uh-huh. and the uh-huh. the role it plays in your poems, Campbell. Yes. <laughs> Probably no, no right. surprise. Right. It's not a trick question. No. Um, but I was going to say mm-hmm. where next because I was wondering if you had that sort of kinetic then thing in you where you're like, I need to go somewhere else because some of part of my work feeds on place. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wondered with Shannon, mm-hmm. the latest book, mm-hmm. why you, you took yourself and mm-hmm. your imagination mm-hmm. on Lewis, uh, Lewis and Clark mm-hmm. expedition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've written, you know, books about Chicago and about Florida, but it's not only places I, you know, living at the moment that I, that I write. I do like place, even if it's not, you know, my own place and I'm not a you know, Nebraskan, I'm not a Great Plains native, but it's a place I've, you know, spent time and driven through and camped in and wandered around. And so that it's a, just a powerful American landscape, that, that um, you know, piece of the Great Plains. And so the history of this particular guy and the Lewis and Clark expedition just was fascinating to me. And How so, did the project, because were you guys on a, like a road trip holiday as a family and it struck you? Or how did this project, what was the... Well, the, the genesis is, you know, I mean, I had actually written a poem about Meriwether Lewis much earlier, you know, like 20 years earlier in my very first book. And while while researching Lewis and Clark then, I came across this little, you know, side note that, oh, this guy, George Shannon, got lost for 16 days and isn't that kind of kooky? And I said, wow, well, that's a neat story. Someday I'm going to come back to it and find out more about it. Because and, of that idea of him being lost and found? or The fact that he was the youngest guy, too. He was, you know, 17 years old, 18 years old. And, and, and you know, I, I remember myself as like a, you know, a 19-year-old person driving across the country and in Nebraska feeling that same sense of like, wow, I'm lost in the middle of America. It's so powerful out there. And wondering, wow, but what if you were really lost? And what if you were the first, you know, Westerner to ever wander that countryside when it was just buffalo herds and, you know, uh, Sioux Indian tribes? And like, well, what, what, what would have been going through your head? I was just fascinated by it. And eventually I got back to saying, well, I'm going to try to, you know, imagine myself into George Shannon's, you know, footsteps. So literally, you had sort of that experience when you were 19, driving across it, and somehow then some, it came back into your consciousness. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I used to, in like in my 20s, I drove across back and forth across country all the time. I mean, you know, dozens of times. That's a poet thing sometimes, I think. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> it might be. I mean, I, you know, I, again, I, I grew up in D.C. I went to college in Chicago. A really good friend went to college in Los Angeles. Another friend was in New York. So we kind of had these excuses to say, hey, let's, you know, quick, let's get this. And you could get driveway cars in those days. You could get, oh, right. you, could get you know, a car. Um, that somebody that, wanted moved for That somebody them, right? wanted transported from, like, Chicago to L.A., and so you had free transportation. So, you know, we'd go hang around these driveway car zones, seeing where they need, had cars going to. We'd say, okay, let's go to Seattle because they got a car that wants to be delivered. Seattle, a great place. You know, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> but that's unfortunate. That's kind of dried up that particular means of transport. People are they're, they're, They don't let young people take those cars anymore, which is probably wise for the car owners. <laughs> Um, well, well, actually, let's take let's take a short break, Campbell, and then we'll come back um, and we'll we'll hear a little bit more, some more poems, and a bit more about the writer's life um, today on the program. Campbell McGrath, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We'll be back. Mm-hmm. 
Lots of folks back east, they say, is leaving home every day, beating the hot old dusty way to the California line. Across the desert sands they roll, getting out of that old dust bowl. They think they're going to a sugar bowl, but here's what they find. Now the police at the port of entry say, you're number 14,000 for today. Oh, if you ain't got the do-re-mi, folks, you ain't got the do-re-mi. Why, you better go back to beautiful Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. California is a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the do-re-mi. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm Tia Hetzel, and today Campbell McGrath is here um, in the studio. Thanks also to Alex Bellhodge for engineering today. And that was some lovely Woody Guthrie just there. Thanks for picking that, Campbell. Yes, well, you're very welcome. Um, you know, I, I mean, I... Uh, my first book, um, I, I, there, there's two halves of that book, and one half has a citation from Woody Guthrie, and the other has one from ACDC. And my second book has, you know, has one half has a citation from Graham Parsons, and the other half from the Jungle Brothers. So, I, I, especially in my first two books, you know, I mean, people used to listen to records then, and there were you always there was two sides of the album. So my first two books both have like two halves, which to me were very much album sides. You know, so they each were, cons- you know, you have your first thing, you have your first poem, your first song, you have a sense of movement through them. And each of them has very different feelings, the two halves. I, you know, I haven't built a book that way in some while. I don't know if that's because records are so now... Did you know you were doing that, though, Campbell? Or was it something that... And were all your poems, like, two to four minutes in length? <laughs> no. <laughs> that, you know, no. They, well, unfortunately, yeah, the, 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 the metaphor only goes so far. Um, I kind of knew I was doing it. I mean, I, you know, it was... I was aware of it as a as a model, but it wasn't like I had to build them like albums for some reason. But I just, uh, you know, I liked. I mean, I, I guess in other words, Woody Guthrie. That there's an Americana kind of strain that I'm really interested in, whether it's Woody Guthrie, Graham Parsons, or you know Wilco. We're talking about you know contemporaries, and and I love that kind of both music and the kind of literature and the kind of feeling in the American landscape that 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 comes from. But on the other hand, I love big cities and like Joey Ramone and a kind of more maybe anarchic urban kind of sound and energy. And I, but I was like, I don't want to have to choose between the two. I want to be both. I want to be Woody Guthrie and Joey Ramone at the same time. I don't want to have to say I'm just one or the other. I feel like sometimes that's happening in your, your poems, too, in the same poem, too, like that competing sense that's ability. That's often, often the case, exactly. That, you know, that, I mean, like, I, I'm, I do, I have, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't mean that I could do this as a musician where I have absolutely no talent, but as a writer, you know, I can be both of them. And so I can like say, yeah, well, this isn't a Ramon song or a Woody Guthrie ballad, but at a, but at a given moment, it can evoke, you know, a dust bowl history or voice, an Americana voice. And another moment, it can go to its other place, and it can just and it can be all those, and then it can be everything else too. I mean, I, that's what I like about poetry. It's you can be the whole symphony, and it's just your voice. You know, and, and you and you have to bring, you know, the the, the downside is, you know, as a, in a band, you actually get to play music, and the music has a lot of power. So as a as a poet, you have to provide the music and the lyrics. You know, you have to you have to be the whole the whole thing. And you know, the, another thing I can analogize poetry to is as a filmmaker. It's 
filmmakers, I'm always so jealous that they can actually just put the image right up there. Like, wait, I photographed this thing, and here it is. I'm, as, a, as a writer, you're struggling to create these images with only language and then use them to kind of move things forward. I think poems, the kinds of poems I write, I'm often thinking about movies, how you know, cinematic, and I'm also thinking about music. That seemed that yeah, I can definitely see that, and especially in the Florida poems that I was reading, that yeah. eye, that 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 camera eye, sort of moving and yeah. shifting. Yeah. And and with the construction, how important? Because um, uh, today in 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 a class of mine, we were reading your the manatee poem mm -hmm. and talking about the sound quality of that poem and how someone said it felt like that the manatee was floating and slow and and sort of this. Like, I don't know if that was intentional, uh -huh. but so. So I wonder if that sounds like part of the voice of the symphony that you're creating, where you're paying not only attention to alliteration, but somehow mm -hmm. like all the, the syllables of the words, like how mm -hmm. it's sounding. Mm -hmm. uh, is that? That is. Yes, that's it. Making that's, sense. <laughs> it, uh, that's making sense. I mean, the music, you know, I mean, language is inherently musical or it can be. I mean, we don't, you know, not in our day to day use of language. We often, you know, when you're saying go to the store and get eggs, you don't, you're not probably conscious of the musicality in that language but um when you speak expressively you know but if you, you often eat do, plums in if the you fridge eat, <laughs> eat plums then with Carlos Williams you can make yeah, even every you can make even the, the the language of everyday you know transaction musical um but yeah you have to be you know your poetry is at heart uh, schizophrenic. I mean, it goes all the way back to the oral tradition. I mean, before there was written language, poetry was, you know, presumably chanted or spoken by people somewhere in, you know, caves around campfires, whatever this vision was. And, you know, we tend to think in our modern day of poetry as text first. It's the words on a page or on a screen even, you know, the book even is dying. But I think, I don't think poetry can afford to leave behind that oral tradition. No, it's moving back to it, don't you think? Again, like I, really you know, strongly so. But it is. I mean, there's a whole oral, you know, side. I mean, and especially, you know, if you, I mean, the whole kind of spoken word tradition and poetry slam tradition very much relies on that side, right? It relies on poetry as a kind of performative and just empowered language to really, to really move people just with sound. Do you do that too? Or do you feel like that's, when you're reading your poems, like that, is that, I mean, it, I don't think you're probably going around to slams doing like slamming people <laughs> so with your poems but yeah. how do how do you feel what do you when you're reading the poems mm -hmm. I I mean I I, I think it? you I I mean I uh I'm probably you know I was kind of trained to do it in a more traditional academic -y way but I don't I don't really think I don't I don't believe in that exactly so I'm ne I'm not a I don't think I'm a performer I'm not a I'm certainly not a dramatist I don't think it should be dramatized <laughs> you know what I mean in that sense I mean I think that spoken word poetry is often closer to drama than to poetry which is a great thing to be it's just not quite the same thing but I you know you need to read with the music that's in the poem. I mean, so maybe the manatee is a quiet poem, and it does have a kind of floating, you know, musicality. But but then in a, in the you know in the hits of the '70s, I think that poem tries to get a lot of kind of crazy rock and rolly, you know, energy going. And so you'd want to read it with that energy. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's hear. Shall we hear something then, Campbell? Like which which piece were you thinking of? Well, I was uh, looking around. I was trying to you know because we were we just heard Woody Guthrie, and you know Woody Guthrie's a person I I actually in a in a forthcoming book. I mean forthcoming as in a, a project I haven't finished at all. I, I'm I've got poems about Woody Guthrie kind of you know in his voice. I don't have those. I don't happen to have those here. So I was trying to. Ah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that would have been great. A scoop. A scoop. Right yeah, yeah, scoop. yeah, exactly right. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, uh, we were talking about uh, 
Chicago and the winter and um or or what even Campbell what about from Shannon because that Woody Guthrie that that music I almost pictured um your main character George Shannon walking along the river at one of the moments where he wasn't despairing <laughs> yeah I don't know if there's yeah you're absolutely right I mean Shannon is you know is the child of Woody Guthrie and of my especially of my you know my sense of Woody Guthrie um so you know, so let me, let me tell you a little bit about George Shannon before I read a little bit out of it. Because so, so George Shannon was the youngest guy on the Lewis and Clark expedition. I mean, the very you know he was like a 17-year-old kid. He signed up. Even the other guys considered him a goofy kid. You know, very nice, likable. Everybody liked him. He was very he was smart and had an education, which was unusual for the guys on the expedition. But they certainly except didn't, for Lewis and Clark. Except for Lewis and Clark. I mean, Lewis had been you know Jefferson's private secretary and was an extremely intelligent and well-educated man. But the the, the general guides and expedition were backwoodsmen. They'd grown up in cabins in Kentucky and in you know Pennsylvania and along the Ohio River. So um, so Shannon though was not you know the best woodsman of them all. Even though he liked to think he was as good as the rest. So part of the comedy of this book is you know they they finally gave him a kind of a task to do and he goes and he gets lost for 16 days which they thought was kind of typical, you know, like, oh, we should never have trusted old George. Um, and the, the rest of the expedition knows that, that they're going to get him back, but he doesn't know it. I mean, he, you know, he ends up believing he's going to die and despairing. But um, um, anyway, he's a uh, charming and funny young guy. So let me just read a tiny bit of, uh, this is like day five. So the, the, the book's organized in, you know, the 16 days that he's lost. Fog on the river, thick as goose down. Now it lifts, swirling clear for a moment, ripples and channels, then lost again to whiteness. All that glinting river vanished, gone. As like to a dream have I wakened, or the light might be facet of some other place one might reside. As when we set out to hunt as boys, coming over a ridge, did see a white stag in the meadow there among hills in Kentucky, shot to no avail. Though I was among the best shot in that country miles around, considered... Truth to tell, I wished to miss him, but did not say so to my father and brothers beside me. Burning off, the fog lifting, small herds of elk coming out from the arroyo to silver water and shadows of clouds over the same hills and wind amongst the grasses grown ceaseless now. Buffalo in large numbers, crossing the sandy channel of a river entering the Missouri, broadest tributary I have observed since the Platte. Here, too, in the braiding of ways, a pattern of barest impression, as might be stained by steady use upon some tool or implement. My rifle stock, curse which, tool unsuited to any purpose in my plight, or axe, shovel, pick, as even the pew of the church beneath my mother's touch grew dark, stained by her devotion, knee and hand alike, so worn, polished, oiled, grooved. So that's George kind of... Um, weaving, you know, the, the, the landscape around in the Missouri River, the herds of buffalo, the grass, the sky, that sense of vastness in the middle of the continent, and then interweaving his memories back to childhood, his mother. And, and the book becomes a kind of spiritual book. You know, he's thinking about, I, I'm not a spiritual person at all, but wandering around, you know, Montana, I might become one. <laughs> the, the landscape seems to me to kind of call it up. And it seems like you're always really connected with nature, 
in this book, you know, I mean, I, and in, in, you know, in, in, or in, the in Florida, Florida poems, book. too. It, I guess, it, it, you know, but, it, you know, in Spring Comes to Chicago, I'm not. Because in Chicago, I don't know. What is nature? It's grass by the it, lake. You were going back to your punk band roots. <laughs> yeah, you're going from punk band roots. <laughs> but also, I mean, you know, you don't, in, in Florida, you're mourning the natural world all the time because it's so beautiful and also endangered. Whereas in Chicago... Or it's, it's against you sometimes, too, with the hurricanes. And in from true. Seven Notebooks, that's you true have as well. a section. You're right. Uh, it's true. Nature is just very visible. Whereas, you know, in the upper Midwest, you don't see it as much, right? I mean, especially in Chicago. Chicago is just like a flat place along the lake. It's not, It's not. you know, in other, even if you imagine it back to its, mm. you know, past, you're just talking about a grassy meadow by the lake. So in Chicago, I think it's the, nat- it's the man-made world. I think that's awesome in Chicago. Whereas in Florida, it's often the natural world and how man is, you know, sadly intruding upon it. And how it's it's fighting to get itself, like reclaim itself if you're, yeah. I know. I mean, if you don't clean out the pool... Alligators will take up residence, and <laughs> you know, and even like invasive species like the pythons that are all over the place now. It's like really wild iguanas. I mean, monitor, you know, komodo, you know, monitor lizards that are like komodo dragons. They're like six feet long lizards. They're all over Southwest Florida now. <laughs> we'll come back. We'll talk more about Florida after the break. Campbell, does that sound that okay? Great. Okay, all right. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Campbell McGrath. Um, we just heard from his his latest book, Shannon, um, a poem of the Lewis and Clark expedition. We'll be back. I was chewing gum with something to do the clowns were being pulled down on the dew Inside out of love, what a laugh, I was looking for you. Saxophones started blowing me down, I was buried in sound. Taxi cabs are driving me around. To the handshake drugs I bought Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, Campbell McGrath here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, Campbell, thanks so much for being on the, the yeah, program. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here, T. Tonight. Oh, well, it's great to see you. <laughs> and we're going to be, I don't know, maybe we should talk a little bit about Florida or 
Hmm. Yeah. You want to? Sure, Since we left not? off with the the would you would you read that manatee poem or is that not something you're no, into? No, I like the manatee poem, and would it's you? again one of my you know flaws as a poet is I write long poems from from book length to you know long medium long, and so the manatee is a nice little poem poem sized poem. That's what actually something I wanted to uh-huh. ask you about mm-hmm. because um, the Bob Hope poem, yeah, seventy pages. Yeah, more or less. I mean, in effect, it's really it would be actually longer than Shannon if it's just in terms of if you adjust for the type size and everything. They're both, you know, they're both a good, you know, good ninety page ish poems. And but then it seems like um, in the book, the Seven Notebooks mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. and and it maybe even um, referenced in in the Florida Poems mm-hmm. book too, like this um, interest in Eastern and Basho mm-hmm. and haiku. So yeah. the shortest of the short. That's so right. You're right. That that yeah, that really showed up in Seven Notebooks. Um, well, I I uh, part of that is you know as you. I mean, what I what I was innately good at and kind of grab, you know, the first thing, that, you know, the, the Whitman is a big influence. And, and like I read Whitman and say, hey, that's that's what I sound like. I mean, that's what my own poetic voice sounds like. My, You know, it's it's documentary and it's horizontal and it's trying to take in big swaths of America and of the world and, and lay it out. And poems that are all like one sentence. It, often poems Literally. that are often, yeah, you know, one sentence or one gesture sweeping forward. And so... You know, you 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 want to get you want to get good at what you're kind of innately good at. But then you say, yeah, but what about the stuff I can't do? You know, and and so the the opposite end. I mean, I I really think that the greatest lyric poet in the world is Basho. I just you know, um, it's like, oh, gosh, how do you do the opposite of what, what Whitman does? You know, how do you instead of making something great by being big and inclusive and expansive, how do you minimize it right down? You know, to a few syllables, to three tiny lines, to just the one image that somehow seems to capture and represent something much larger. So that was really, you and know, and it's sustained too, isn't it, Campbell? It's almost like when you read it, it's not as if when it's done, it's done. It's like something continues on. That's in, in the best. You know, the best little haiku seems to represent something as large as a great, you know, large poem, and that's like a real mystery. So, so that was just a kind of, you know, as a writer saying, "Gosh, I, I want to. Can I? How good? How can I learn from this? How can I? What can I learn from Basho? You know, how can I try to emulate him?" And so, over a couple of years, I was just really studying and trying to write, you know, haiku. And that, did you did you know from. Robert Hass? Because you mentioned him, mm-hmm. you um, in the book to say in the acknowledgments, I think. Yeah, um, I do. I know Robert Hass. He was a teacher of mine when I was in graduate school, and he's always just been this incredible influence on my vision of poetry um you know i don't uh, it, i don't write like robert Hass usually i mean it, it wouldn't be an association you'd make i don't think just from reading my work but but it's because it, it's more just of a he you know when i was in college reading poetry and you're looking for you know models or how you put it what i loved about Hass and still love is like you don't have to choose between being a writer of great intelligence and a writer of great you know sensory and sensual information Hass writes about the body and the lived-in world and about the ideas that underlie that. He's hyper-intelligent and yet also real, embodied, sensual. He's eating and drinking and, and partaking of the world. And I just loved being both of those. I didn't, I, I, he gave me permission to not have to choose between being an intellectual or a kind of person in the world. I said, oh, you, I, that's because that's what I want as a writer. Again, I want to be, you know, if I want to be Woody Guthrie and Joey Ramone, I also want to be, you know, I also wanted to be, you know, I, I, you know, when standing in line at 7-Eleven to buy cupcakes, you might be thinking about Wittgenstein. That's okay. That's just the way it goes. You know, you don't you're, have to pick one. You're a man of polarities. I'm a man of polarities. <laughs> and Robert Hass, in a way, gave me permission to indulge some of those polarities. They're different, you know, different ones. But so, yes, and certainly in terms of haiku, the place where I learned about them was through Hass's um, 
book, which is called The Essential Haiku, and it comes from Echo Press. And it's just because it's not just because the haiku are so great. It has is a brilliant, brilliant translator. And the book is full of explanatory kind of information that they give you the history and the context in a social way in Japan. And so you suddenly haiku went from something that, had, you know, when they teach them to you in junior high school and you all, you know, everyone writes a haiku right. about their cat, you know, and it seemed like kind of, you know, a, a very sentimental and silly kind of poem in that one pretending like that. And the idea that it was profound and so personalized to the voice I hadn't understood until Hass, until reading Hass's translations. And was that in grad school for you, or did you come to it later and later. then just reconnect with him and, and talk yeah, with him? And, that was later, yeah. exactly. I, um, yeah, he hadn't done as he hadn't published that book at the time when I, you know, when I, you know, it would be like eighty five or eighty six when I took classes with him in grad school. Um, but he was thinking about it, and it was influencing his own writing, and that was interesting. Um, and also, he written some essays that were about it. So, you know, um, so he hadn't published it yet on mass. But yeah, later over the years, you know, he's got he and I have the same editor and the same publisher. So over the years, I get to I'm always very happy when I get to run into him because he's the, the, the smartest person about poetry. He's ever, so lovely. Ever. He's been he's a friend of the show. Well, he's too. a super he's nice lovely. guy. <laughs> but I mean, even just beyond being a nice guy, anything he has to say about poetry is like the authentic truth. Like in, so insightful and always correct. So, I mean, all my students know, you know, they're like, I say, now, can anybody guess where I learned this? And I'll say, Robert asks, like, correct. <laughs> That's the first person to tell me X or Y or Z. Well, it sounds like, okay, so you've got him in there in your in your mind. There's a voice of his coming in. And then also the Whitman, like you mentioned. Yeah. And then Neruda seems like a big, at yeah. least in Seven, seven notebooks, notebooks again. Yeah, I mean, you know, because I think your influences and interests evolve over your lifetime, right? I mean, they're, you know, what you're just personally interested in and what, as an artist, you're trying to maybe work at or get good at. And, um, yeah, I had a whole kind of basho uh, moment or, you know, period of time, year or two. And then I also had a Neruda. You know, I'm still interested in both those guys, but I'm not as I'm not day-to-day invested in them. But I was with Neruda for several years. Um and, you know, so in, in putting together seven notebooks, you know, it, it kind of shows, you know, that book's car- you know, set up as a, as a kind of journal in a year in the, the writer's life, which is my life in some senses, but, you know, deviates. And, you know, I, I think that's how we live our lives. You know, you're, you're, you're engaged in, you know, whatever you're doing. You're taking your kids to school. You're going for groceries. But you're also in your head might be a real interest in Naruto one season. But by the next season, it may have shifted and it might be in, um, you know, French new wave movies. I mean, who, you know, because our attention moves and you get really into something. Or at least I do. I get, I'm, I'm, I'm an enthusiast and I want to know everything about it. And then... I don't abandon it, but I move on. I move forward happily to some other place. More enthusiasms, right? More, uh, enthusiasms. New enthusiasms, <laughs> exactly. And, and so could I ask you a structural question now mm-hmm. then about um, the, the seven notebooks? Yeah. Because did you, because um, like, uh, as a writer, like you, do you really, do you have a notebook? Do you have many notebooks? Are they, are, mm-hmm. do they, do you have one for Dawn? <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or how are you using the notebook? Is it important to you as a writer? Well, yeah, literal. My literal notebooks are really important to me. Um, I think it's. I think that's a great. You know, I, I wish I was. I wish I had notebooks back to the time I was like sixteen. You know, I, I don't exactly. I have little pieces of things going back to when I was sixteen, but I wish I would really authoritatively had. I, I have it from a time I'm like you know twenty one. I have notebooks going all the way back. You know, because I always want to go back and say, what was that restaurant we ate at in 1985 on the, you know, the west side of Chicago? And, and I can usually go back and find that kind of data in my notebook. That's not so, always. That's so Joan Didion of you. <laughs> it is very document. I, people say, why am I not a documentary filmmaker if I'm so just documenting the world? I think poetry is a great documentary medium. That's one thing. And flexible. And But much more flexible, yeah. right? I mean, I, I, I feel... 
inhibited in prose, um, and I think, and even in you know filmmaking, or whatever, you're reliant on all that external technology. As a poet, you you only need your voice and your imagination, and you can do it all. But so anyway, so you know, I don't. So the so the seven notebooks is set up as seven distinct notebooks. I don't have seven distinct notebooks in which you know one of them I wrote all this. But so the one of them that's most the the dawn notebook, which is in the middle of the book, which is the most haiku intensive part of it. I do. I spend my summers in New Jersey at the Jersey Shore with my wife's family. We like got a, the family has a beach house there, and I'm like you know 15 of us smashing the beach house with all the little kids, and it's really fun. But I, I spent these two summers. Just waking up every day, like, because the, the sun floods in off of the ocean, waking up, like, right before dawn and writing haiku. And I was like, I don't know why. That, I, it was totally not something I had planned as some, you know, willed enterprise. It just came to me writing these haiku over and over. And so that, that book was really assembled out of two years of really the, the actual experience. And so, uh, you know, so the book's put together as one year. It's actually the pieces of several years reconfigured to suggest that one year. But, you know, it's still true to the, to the reality of how we live, even if it's not that's not one 365 day period of my life. And why did you, it's interesting though, like why then you chose titles for like, as if they were separate. Nope. You know, why did you make that choice to have the civilization notebook mm -hmm. papyrus? Well, because, because the, the, the New Jersey, well, also because in this, you know, something I've done a couple of times, I live in, in South Florida, but I've taught at university of Chicago as the visiting poet a couple of times. And, and there was a, about six years ago, we went back and lived in Chicago for the spring and, you know, we lived in Hyde Park, and my kids went to school there and experienced that. So I said, well, I want that Chicago piece to be a separate piece, because it really was, you know. And, and, and I, as one of the poems says, I, I feel like I'm a different person when I live in Chicago. I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm different. I, it was for me remembering, you know, as, again, as a serial Chicagoan. There's another time I've lived in Chicago. In fact, I wasn't even counting that. Um, right. You know, I was hearkening back to that sense of myself and who I was, and, and so it felt very distinct, those poems in that place. I said, well, that's going to be one piece, and that's clearly distinct, so it should be its own notebook. It, you know, I could have just called them notebooks. You know, I could have given them numbers, one through seven. Did, and then, so the other material, you know, part of it's organized with Neruda as a central fascination, and then another piece becomes, you know, then I'm back in Florida by the end of the book for the last two sections, and so that's kind of Florida again, and one is kind of hurricanes and traumas, and then there's a final section where, like, my interest is evolving towards Van Gogh and towards kind of visual art, and that was representative of someplace else I was thinking about. So, you know, um, it was just, or it was kind of, they're kind of like seven chapters, seven organizational structures within the, the larger whole. But I love how it's it paying, like a, giving a shout out or a tribute to the idea of the notebook, the writer's Which, notebook, and how it works. Nothing's more valuable to a writer. Nothing. You, it's where, because, I, I mean, I think. In the ideal writer's notebook, it's you write down stuff you did that you want to remember, but you write down every idea, fleeting images. You know, you, the, the the stuff that you wake up in the morning and you have these half-remembered ideas or lines of poems, and you write them down, and then you can go. But someday you realize where that's supposed to go. Like, oh, that, remember that dream with that line or two? If you do, I still have it. I mean, because when you're young, you figure, oh, my memory's good enough. Oh, but <laughs> oh, but it is not. Sadly, it. It is not good enough. Exactly. You need to rely on writing it down. I think there is a Neruda ode to memory, isn't there? The, I, yeah. There is, yeah. <laughs> Let's take a short break. And, and if we remember to, we'll come back. <laughs> um, you're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Campbell McGrath. We'll be back. I'm up in the woods. I'm down on my mind. I'm building a still to slow down the time I'm up in the woods 
T. Hetzel, you've got living writers. Today, Campbell McGrath is here in the studio. Thanks again to Alex Bellhodge for engineering. And um, Campbell, thanks for picking the Kanye to like coast <laughs> us into like the Miami, the Florida. The, not that he doesn't yeah. have a house down there, does he? But it's, Kanye, no, he's down there though. Oh, yeah. He, uh, you know what? Actually, could he, um, I heard Kanye from a distance, from my house, that is. He um, was down in Miami for the big Art Basel. Uh, it's a big giant art show that takes place in Miami, and all these you know, millionaires are flying in to buy famous paintings. But it's a big, also a giant party, as Miami loves big parties. And <laughs> he was um, apparently appearing at one of the big hotels that's like situated like a few blocks from my house. And when the wind blows the right direction, when they have outdoor events there, the sound just blows right past the house. He was there with some really famous DJ, some like you know club DJ who I don't know what it was. Anyway, so we were hearing this, you know, blown <laughs> on the wind. We heard a whole like concert. I heard the Eagles playing there once during an Eagles reunion tour in like nineteen, you know, eighty eight or something. It's like, huh, it's a strange place, Miami Beach. <laughs> the truer words <laughs> never spoke. <laughs> um, well, so so yeah, so. Florida itself, like Miami Beach is strange. Florida Mm -hmm. is strange. I mean, you were mentioning as a joke, like being a serial Chicagoan and not a serial killer, but like the serial killers, like usually touch base in Florida, at least at some point. Like it's just, it's a crazy state. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you like, you shake the whole, you shake the whole country and the crazy people fall to the bottom and they, you know, they fall down into Florida kind of is what happens or. It, it's um. You're pretty down there in the, the way where down there. All the <laughs> Miami is really yeah ground zero, you know, except for Key West, which is you know the Keys are particularly strange and they're even below us. But no, it's. I love the Keys. Oh, I do too. The Keys are great, and there's because there you know there are not many places in the country that are that offbeat and just you know live and let live. Well, but actually Miami is very live and let live too. It seems to me it's a very t- it's a place that is hugely diverse and very tolerant of diversity. I mean that's what I really like about living in Miami is is the sense of living in a kind of pan-American, you know, city that is as much a part of Latin America as it is part of North America. Um, and the very, world knows it, too. Like, it's, it's that's, that's true. globally, people know Florida. They know Miami. They absolutely do. And Disney. No, they do. For, yeah, Disney and Miami are the two things. I mean, huge numbers of Europeans, exactly, come to, you know, on a trip that, can, that goes two places. It goes to Orlando to see Disney, and it comes to Miami to see Miami because of a kind of... You know, Mediter- you know, at its best, there's a Latin vibe. I mean, there's also a kind of Mediterranean vibe in the, the you know, there's the beach cafes and there's a lot of um, 
you know, my kids went to public elementary school in Miami Beach, and there's a lot of French kids and Italian kids whose families are there to run a cafe or a bakery. And also Argentine kids and Brazilian as well as Cuban and Honduran and West Indian, everything. But so it has that international, you know, it's very different, in other words, from living in Chicago, where you're in the middle of the country and you feel very much in the middle and you're kind of landlocked in the middle of the continent and you're very much at the edge in Miami and it's, you know, it's where where North American culture runs into South American culture. And it's just very interesting to be able to participate in the kind of energy that that collision uh, brings forth. However, it also means there's a lot of kind of, the energy has a lot of anarchy and chaos to it too. So that's why you tend to get crazy, inexplicable events happening in Florida all the time. You know, I mean, it's just like, why Florida again, you know, for, for this thing or that thing, whatever it might be. It's like, I don't know. It just seems to gravitate towards us. And then the storms, too, because in the seven notebooks, it seems mm-hmm. like you're chronicling one of the seasons where it was particularly intense, where yeah. it was just like storm yeah, after storm. Yeah, it was that particular year, which, again, is I don't know what year that was. It was six, seven years ago when we just had hurricane after hurricane. It might have been hurricane. 2004, maybe. It might have been or, four or six. It was around. I honestly don't remember now. It's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, and I mean, like, and Katrina was what was bad for us, for instance, you know, and, and we were like starting to complain about it, but then it, you know, then it went back across the Gulf, oh, no, and no, no. it was like a Category One when it hit Miami, but it was very dangerous. I mean, it really knocked things down. Then it went back into the Gulf waters, got supercharged again before it hit New Orleans. But then we had this one Wilma that same year. I mean, I, you know, like friends at my house, I had no electricity for twelve days, and that's you know, it's it's weird. You have no, you you're going back to like you know, living by candlelight up and down the block, and the kids are all riding their bikes, and you're like you're talking to neighbors you never talked to before because you all are sitting out front, you know, nothing to do for these twelve days. It was very interesting, but yes, it also reminds you that you know that nature is the boss, and we, for all our technological prowess, are still pretty damn you know at 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 risk. Yeah, I feel like there was an, a particular entry in the hurricane notebook mm-hmm. that was. Yeah, there's a it couple. I mean, it's it's very much acknowledging that uh, you know there's a poem called Humility. Yes, that's yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 uh, very much about that. I'm gonna try to find that poem oh, right here. Yeah, I got it, it right okay. here. So this is called Humility. It just speaks to our point here. Humility, sweeping the mud from the courtyard, mopping the water that's flooded the garage, a mess though it might have been far worse. Upstate, two million are without electricity, and suddenly the historical emptiness of this place comes clear. Turn off the juice, unplug the AC, and it would revert in weeks to low-slung jungle. The jungle knows its place, because whatever grows tall gets knocked down by the wind. No palm trees here like the slender beanstalk giants towering over Los Angeles. (coughs) Hurricanes teach you to keep your head low. They teach humility. So that's a poem about, you know, living, enduring the uh, hurricane. That was that, that was the worst hurricane year in a very long time when we got one after another another. It was exhausting, you know. Again, luckily, uh, you know, the point is you, as bad as you're feeling, then, you know, the last one of them all goes to New Orleans and you realize, oh, this is not so bad to have your trees knocked down and your electricity out for even if it's for two weeks. Um, it is what it is. You take, you know, I, it's you've traded, you know, you trade the the kind of cold the upper Midwest has been having, like la, you know, last when went to zero for the hurricanes, and you say, well, you know, you're gonna have to put up with something wherever you live. So it's not so bad, perhaps. Do you did you feel like there was a a different kind of vulnerability that you had in the yeah. seven notebooks because of the some of them maybe were meant to be fragments, but mm-hmm. now. It's you've compiled it and, and shaped it into mm-hmm. a book. Well, vulnerability is a good word. It, yeah, there's a lot of vulnerability in that book. I mean, um, 
because it's yeah I, that that's a good word. I mean, you, we're vulnerable to hurricanes. There's you know, I mean, there's or health issues, health issues, and you realize you're vulnerable. You know, and just be, being a parent is you realize you're vulnerable. As soon as you as soon as you have children in this world, your vulnerability comes clear because you're like, oh man, now I get it. You know, as soon as you've as soon as you brought children into the world, you feel at risk. Because as a grown, you know, when you're in your 20s, you don't really care. Like, okay, so what happened? Whatever. A meteor falls on my head, whatever. Right? Well, you know, <laughs> what's, what's the big deal? As soon as you have children, you feel vulnerable. And, that, and so this book was trying to capture you, a, a, mid, a midlife father, and, you know, there, there's millions of kinds of vulnerability. And, and, uh, and, but, but I think you were talking about formally, too. There's a, the poems go from there. They're complete lyric poems, but there's also kind of journal entry type pieces and kind of fragments. And that's a way of admitting another kind of vulnerability. As the writer, you're not, you're not packaging each piece as a perfectly polished poem. It's more allowing the reader to see the process in a way. Sometimes there'll be like a journal entry and a little bit later you see, oh, this poem came out of that entry, didn't it? You know, or, oh, his reading of Neruda must be why he now wrote this poem. <laughs> and you see that process of influence. But that, you know, that's how we work as artists, right? It's not, it, the ideas don't spring fully formed into our heads. It's, it's what you've been reading and what you've been doing with your life. And then a poem you tried to write that failed, you know, that's, somehow that all leads you to this other poem, and then that's the poem that works. And it seems sort of a, a, a generous thing to do, like to be, I don't know, showing... The, the the mind at work in the notebooks and putting that into like a little bit like you know Oz behind the curtain or whatever I, that, that's part of the impulse of the book is to say you know I mean I the Bob Hope poem is situated as like one day in the life of a mind you know the day of life of this narrator's mind where he just happens to think about everything in this complicated way and seven notebooks for me was a year in the life of the mind I mean it's it's really a life you know like and, 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 you know, like, look, this is how far our mind ranges. You know, one day you go to the Native American, you know, festival in the Everglades, and another day, you know, you go to your in-law's house, and uh, then one day you're reading Neruda, and another day you're watching a movie. And all of these things, our influence, go into our heads and make our consciousness so complicated, and it's out of our consciousness that our poems arise. And it, and it seems like um, that that energy that you were talking about being in Florida too that's that's really fueled that declarative voice as well because i know the manatee one um well it's lovely because you address the manatee mm -hmm. his brother mm -hmm. and sister sea cow mm -hmm. <laughs> but in the the florida poem the final poem in yeah. the book again it has that what i think is that ex authoritative authoritative expansive voice yeah. proclaiming things about this place and and humor coming in too mm -hmm. but also some some judgment mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I'm very judgmental, but I tend to have, <laughs> I tend to have strong feelings on both sides. Somewhere in the Bob Hope poem, I say I am the Walt Whitman. I am a veritable Walt Whitman of ambivalence, you know. I, and again, by I think ambivalence is un, it's important to understand. Ambivalence doesn't mean not caring; it means caring, but on both sides of an issue. I mean, I love this and I hate this, and that's unfortunately true very often, you know, in Florida or in American culture in general. I have very strong, I love things and I also really disagree and I'm angry about things. So I don't want to pick one or the other. I want to talk about both. Um, so yeah, and the Florida poems for sure. They, the, yeah, the last, you know, the, the, the big Florida poem was an attempt to say, well, where's, you know, as I did with Chicago, but you know, Chicago is a place rich in local history, local mythology, local sense of self. Florida is a place very, very poor in that. You know, Florida is, is a kind of history of erasure you know, one Native American cultures were erased by European cultures, and Americans erased the Spanish culture. And now, the the way Florida works is if any, you know if anything that's more than ten years old, they tear it down and build something new because they just seem to be bothered by the past. They just don't want to be reminded of history. 
So that's an attempt to say, well, how do you think about history in a place that is willfully historyless? How do you try to, th- what, 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 you know, what, what mythology could Florida have? You know, what, what would it be? And weird that the fountain of youth was there, right? Like this, so this obsession with youth and that it was <laughs> supposed to have yeah, been there. Yeah, it's true. I agree. You know, it's a great, that's a great symbol for Florida, the fountain of youth, because of course, you know, it's also because it's an illusion. Because, <laughs> because, oh, by the way, that thing you're talking about, it doesn't exist. This is a myth. This is mythology, you know, and yet you're acting as if it's real. I'm going to live there and live forever. No, you can't. That, that, but so, you know, all of Florida is, you know, premised on this chasing of an illusory uh, fall. I don't you know, false makes it sound too, is too judgmental, but illusory kind of ideal. It's like, that's not there. But by the same token, the fact that Florida doesn't have this, you know, deep bred history mythology means it has a great deal of potentiality. I mean, it, you know, in other words, a place like Texas, which, you know, in some sense, Texas and Florida ought to be peers. You know, they're mm. big sunbelt states. They've grown from, you know, they've grown immensely in the later 20th century. And both Gulf. Like both Gulf Coast states, you know, sunbelt states. They're the parts of America that are keep growing. But, you know, Texas has this huge sense of self. I mean, you know, all over the country, Texans are in charge of things from, you know, the president to the <laughs> news anchor to whatever. They're these big... There's no famous Floridians. There's never been a famous person from Florida, basically. There's never been a president. There's never been a very important oh, they moved, politician. Oh, you mean they moved to Florida, though? People moved like to Henry Florida. Like Henry Flagler. Like Flagler, right. <laughs> exactly. But they're, they're, but he's a famous, you know, Michigander, right? Or he's famous for, you know, for auto industry stuff. People moved to Florida, but nobody has arisen from Florida to shape America. So it's like, well, but that's interesting hmm. because Texas, as, pow- as empowering as it is, you know, all these Texans are also these hugely ego-driven, you know, figures that, that tend to have a kind of... There's admirableness, but there's also this kind of imperialism in that worldview. Mm. Florida, I think, has lacked the accomplishment, but also it seems to me to lack some secret desire to control the world that Texans have. <laughs> well, now that Walt Disney isn't with us anymore, yeah, but perhaps. he too again, you know, he and he wasn't, but he wasn't a Te- I mean, he wasn't a Floridian. He, these people, yeah, Florida has been, you yeah. know, a home of immigrants and transients. Now, and what my one of my rig interests is okay, but now. There's 25 million people living in Florida. They're not all just, they didn't all just show up, and they're not all leaving. What will these, you know, the generation of people like I've been teaching for the last 20 years, what will these real Floridians make of the place? And I, you know, I tend to be very hopeful because I think the human, diverse and multicultural human capital in Florida is really potentially very powerful. So it would be great to see what happens. And... And those manatees, even though they always are on the cusp of extinction, yeah, and hold on. and they're like there's one- a big this was a big comeback year for the manatee. In fact, I don't know if you noticed. I mean, there was an article. There was a big, a, a much they they counted like I don't know an extra two hundred manatees or something that they and, hadn't expected. And those are that's um like those are Florida residents. They are Florida residents. Yes, they are. Um, you know, and they've been around what since the dinosaurs? They've been around forever, <laughs> and they're so you know they're, they're such a beautiful, strange, you know, passive, peaceful animal. Would you mind reading? Yeah, let's that? read that. Let's read that poem. It's called "The Manatee." Deep sunk in the dream time of his terminal coma, the manatee persists like a vegetative outpatient, victim of the whirling propellers of impatience and a buoyantly bovine quiescence gone no 